0: on page 332, if you have a blue Bible around you. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jeff. Hey guys, good morning. I am Josh, I'm one of the pastors here. We are glad that you guys are here. Um, we are, as you can tell, both from the candles there, and uh, yeah, there it is, the, uh, the screen in back of me. We are in a series uh, during the season of Advent. And so if you're not familiar with church, or you're not familiar with kind of more the traditional uh, rhythms of the church, Advent is a time, it literally means coming, and it literally means that we remember the first coming of Jesus, we look back to the first coming of Jesus, but we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus. In a sense, Advent reminds us what time it is. Advent reminds us that we live in the time between the times. We live in the time between the time when Jesus came and began his program of redemption, his program of renewal, of making all things new. But it also reminds us that that's not finished. And we can feel that in the world around us, that that's not finished, that one day Christ is going to return and he's going to set all things right and he's going to make all things new. And so Advent is a way that we remember where we are in the story of God. And what I love about Advent is I think Advent tells us a more realistic story. I think Advent tells us a better story than the story we typically hear at Christmas time. I think Christmas kind of gives us a piece of what we sometimes look at, of some some pieces of reality, but I think the way that we typically celebrate Christmas misses some pieces of what we experience in the world around us. To be completely honest with you, uh, for most of my life, I've been pretty cynical about Christmas. I've never been big on the holiday season, which is completely what you'd expect from the guy who wears black all the time. Uh, I am not festive at all when it comes to these kind of things. And and I think there are two things, I think there are two primary things, if I can put my finger on it, that really irk me about Christmas, at least the the way that we celebrate it typically uh, in America. The first is consumerism, which is not a surprise to anybody, like consumerism is absolutely rampant at Christmas time. But the second, and I think what really annoys me more than consumerism, is sentimentality sentimentality absolutely abounds at christmas time and here's what i mean i mean this warm fuzzy impulse that compels people to wear ugly sweaters and to drink eggnog or wassail or whatever that is and to walk around acting like buddy the elf and to walk around acting like everything is merry and bright and everything is wonderful but when you actually look at the world the world is still broken Still families falling apart, still people sleeping on the streets, still children dying of AIDS. And the holiday season can become so sentimental that we stop being real, that we stop being honest. And so that's what I love about Advent. I think Advent invites us to be honest. Advent invites us about to be honest, about our longings and our brokenness, the brokenness of our lives, the brokenness of our families, the brokenness of the world around us. So it invites us into honesty, but at the same time, it invites us into hope because it reminds us that something better is coming. The promise of Advent is that a better king is coming, that the king is going to return, that he is going to set all things right, that he is going to make all things new. So this year here at Soma, we're looking at some of those promises from the book of Isaiah. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah uh, is a collection of visions and prophecies that God gave to this guy named Isaiah. And he gives him these prophecies and these visions 700 years before the birth of Christ. It talks about how God's people were being crushed under the evil in the world, and not just the evil out there in the world, but they were being crushed under the evil in their own hearts. But it also tells the story about how God doesn't give up on his people. How God promises to send a deliverer. He, he sends a savior. He's going to send a king who's going to set them free. And so as we look at this king, this better king that we're waiting for, we're going to see in this text today four things that make him the better king. Four things that Jesus the king offers you today. And four things that one day he will make true for the entire world. We're going to see that Jesus gives us a better hope. He gives us a better wisdom, he gives us a better justice, and he gives us a better world. A better hope, a better wisdom, a better justice, and a better world. First, a better hope. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right, Who's Jesse? What's the deal with the stump? What's the shoot growing out of the stump? If, if you've read the Hebrew Scriptures, and specifically if you've read the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Jesse is the father of King David. King David was the greatest king in all the history of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promises to King David, David, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. It's going to be a dynasty that reigns forever and ever, and one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. So here's what you need to know. For the people of God, for the people of Israel, they clung to that promise for dear life. That is what all of their hope was wrapped up in. That's hard for us to understand today because we don't live in that kind of a monarchy. But for them, that was all of their hope in the world. That was all of their identity as a people. They were the people who lived under the king that God had sent them in order to bring blessing to them and through them to bring blessing to the entire world. It was what their hope was completely wrapped up in. And then Isaiah comes along 300 years later and it looks really bad. Because David has been dead for centuries. And most of his descendants who came after him were either incompetent or were downright wicked. And now there's this foreign army, this brutal foreign oppressive army called Assyria, knocking on the door, threatening to come in and to enslave God's people and to destroy God's city. That's the whole point here in verse 1 of the stump analogy. The house of Jesse, the the house of David, was once this majestic tree, but now it's been cut down to the ground and burned. And all the hopes of the people of God are nothing more than a burnt-over stump. And so because of that, the people of God are tempted to go looking for hope in other places. That's what, if you get the Cliff Notes version of the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, that's what it's all about. The people of God are tempted to stop trusting in God and instead to trust in military and political alliances. They're tempted to make a deal with the other nations around them because they don't trust that God is going to take care of them. They have lost their hope in God, so they go looking for something else to put their hope in. Not all that different from you and me, huh? So let me ask you, what is it that you're tempted to hope in? What is it that you're tempted to put your trust in instead of God? Some of us are are like these ancient Israelites here in Isaiah, putting our hope in political power. I mean, that is such a temptation for American Christians. If we can get the right people in office, if we can get the right justices on the Supreme Court, if we can get the right access to political power, then we'll have hope. If you don't believe that's a thing, just pull up your Facebook feed and look at all the vitriol that is spewed from left and from right on it. Why are we so polarized? Why do we vilify each other over politics? Why why are some of us, as we look at Christmas dinner a couple weeks out, absolutely terrified of stepping on a political landmine around the table with our families? It's because so many Americans, and specifically so many American Christians, have placed their ultimate hope in political power. Listen, politics has its place, but it should never take the place of God. It should never become the center of your hope. So, for some of us, that's what we put our hope in political power. For some of us, it's something completely different. It's our our financial wealth, it's our earning potential, it's our physical health, it's our family, or our friends, or our, our romantic relationships, or our intelligence. And there is nothing wrong, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but none of those things are strong enough, none of those things are solid or certain or sure enough to be your hope. Look what Isaiah says right before this, Isaiah 10, comes right before this passage. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power, The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thicket of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. He says, all human power will be cut down like a forest that has been raised to the ground. Everything else, everything you place your hope in will be cut down to nothing. So Merry Christmas. That's your, that's your warm, fuzzy sentimentality for Christmas time. And it's funny, like we, we often quote these passages. You come to the book of Isaiah, you come to church during Advent season, and you hear all these passages of hope from the book of Isaiah, and there are all these passages of hope, but, but all of these oracles of hope are preceded by oracles of judgment. And that's, that's, that's what you see. You see judgment, 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 darkness, gloom, destruction, and then hope. Even the house of David, he says, is going to become a stump. The Davidic monarchy is going to be cut down to nothing. Everything you are hoping in is going to be cut down to the ground and burned. But out of that burned out stump, God's going to bring life. Into that darkness, God is going to shine his light. A shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. We don't have time to get into all of this today, but this is actually a pattern that you see all throughout the book of Isaiah. You see it in Isaiah 6, you see Isaiah 9, you see it in Isaiah 11, you see it in Isaiah 40, you see it all throughout the book of Isaiah, and here's the pattern. God promises to bring hope through judgment. You read the book of Isaiah, all these oracles of judgment, but then these amazing promises of hope, and what God is saying is that salvation is coming. Grace will have the final word. On the other side of judgment, you will find hope. Can I just say this this is why we structure our services the way we do here at Soma? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we're intentional about the way that we structure our gatherings here at Soma. Start, Start with a call to worship. We recognize God is holy and we're called to worship Him. I know most of us aren't in here for it every week, but we do this. We do it every single week. And we start with this call to worship, then we move to a time of confession, we move to a time of lament. We recognize we're sinful. We recognize that that we're condemned rightly under the justice of God. We recognize that the world is broken, and we recognize that we are broken. And we cry out to God to make it whole, and we cry out, God, I am poor and powerless, and I need your grace. And then we move to a time of assurance. We receive the comfort of knowing that even though we deserve God's judgment, he has brought us salvation. Even though we are deeply broken and the world is deeply broken, God has not given up on us. God is going to set all things right and he's going to make all things new. And so we can stand and we can sing, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, sin has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ. You're my living hope. But that living hope comes after Darkness. The light shines into that darkness. It comes out of a recognition that we are broken and that we need the grace of God. There's a logic to the way that we do this. Assurance comes after confession because that's the logic of the gospel. That's the logic of how we relate to God. Because the truth is that you can't experience salvation. You can't really experience hope until you've experienced something of what it means to be under the judgment of God. Let me say that again, because I know that that goes against the grain of everything we're typically taught to think in 21st century America, but you will never experience real hope. You will never experience hope and freedom and salvation that God wants you to experience until you recognize that you actually don't deserve it, that you actually deserve only his judgment. You you will never experience God's healing until you recognize that you're sick and you need a doctor. You will never be dazzled by the light until you are confronted with the darkness, until you learn to be honest about the ways that you've turned your back on God and what tried to do things as if you are your own God. And the truth is, none of us naturally want to do that. None of us naturally want to be honest about those things, but they always well up within us, and we try to push them aside, and we try to ignore them, and we try to throw ourselves into our work, or we try to throw ourselves into relationships, or we try to throw ourselves into Netflix, or we try to do anything we can to drown out that voice, but we all know that there is something deeply broken in us. There is some deep darkness in us, and we never want to admit it. We try to explain it away. We try to minimize it. We try to shift the blame to other people. And we think that that's freedom, but that is so enslaving. That is such slavery because you're always having to try to justify yourself. You're always having to try to defend yourself. You're always trying to convince yourself, I'm not that bad. I've got a good explanation for it. You're never able to be honest with yourself and with other people and with God. God says you don't have to pretend. You don't have to posture. You don't have to play the religious games. You don't have to keep trying to trust in yourself or your own morality. Come and place your hope only in Jesus because when you stop building your hope on your own morality and your own righteousness, you are set free to place your hope in Jesus and his righteousness. He offers us a better hope. Some of you today... You come in and you feel like your life is like these people in Isaiah chapter 11. My life has been burned down to the ground. I feel like I've lost all my hopes and dreams and I don't know what to do with it. Your hope of finding a spouse has been cut down and burned to the ground. Your hope for your marriage has been cut down and burned to the ground. Your hope for your career has been cut down and burned to the ground. What I want you to hear as you experience that, as you experience feeling like your life is nothing but a burned over stump is that that's where God brings redemption. That's where God brings hope. The the scriptures tell us that God is the God who brings life out of the dead. And sometimes he allows all those other things to be cut down and burned to the ground because he wants to give us something better because he wants to give us a sure and solid hope that we can bank our lives on. He's our better hope. second thing he gives us is he gives us a better wisdom, a better hope and a better wisdom. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You read the Hebrew scriptures, you see that the Spirit of the Lord falls upon people and empowers them for leadership. So you go to the book of Exodus, we're gonna be starting Exodus uh, in February. You go to the book of Exodus and you see the Spirit of God falls on Moses, empowers him to lead. You go to the book of Joshua, the Spirit of God falls on Joshua, empowers him to lead. You go to the book of Judges, the Spirit of God falls on all these other people and empowers them to lead. You get to the book of First Samuel and you see that the Spirit of God falls on King David and empowers him to lead, 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes upon him. And the very next thing you read, 1 Samuel 17, David is out on the field of battle chopping off the head of the giant Goliath. He's the anointed one. Uh, The Messiah literally means the anointed one. He is the one who has been anointed with the Spirit of God. And remember, all the hopes of God's people are bound up in that Messiah, in that anointed one. Isaiah says here, David is long gone, but a better David, a better king, a better Messiah is coming and the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. And what does the spirit give him? Look at verse two, gives him wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He has a better wisdom than we typically have. And that's so important because this is the king The king needs wisdom to rule well. The king needs wisdom to know how to lead the people toward flourishing. Nobody wants to follow an idiot. I don't want to trust a king who doesn't know what he's doing. But here's the thing you need to know about Jesus. Sometimes the wisdom of Jesus doesn't look like wisdom to us. See, he turns the wisdom of the world upside down. He brings a better wisdom. Let me give you an example. Just, just think about this with me, all right? If you wanted to start a global movement, if you set out and said, I want to change the world, how would you do it? Like, what would your strategic plan look like? You'd make sure you get all the right resources, you got all the right funding, you make sure you're plugged in to the right networks, you get all the influential people on board. Above all, you try really hard not to die. And this is how Jesus does it. Think about how Jesus does it. He is born into poverty he lives the first 30 years of his life in obscurity as a nobody in some redneck town in the middle of nowhere. He never goes to college, he never writes a book, never goes to Rome, the center of power, never even joins LinkedIn. He, he gathers a few nobodies around him and he dies as a criminal after three years of ministry. And yet today, you and I and two billion other people all over the world are celebrating his birth and his life, and his death, and his resurrection today. The wisdom of Jesus turns the world upside down. Like, think about the Christmas story. Have you ever asked the question, why do the wise men come to worship Jesus? These powerful rulers, like these guys were powerful rulers who were renowned for their wisdom. Why did they travel to a foreign country to bow down to a child who can't even talk or write or read? It's because God's wisdom is infinitely greater than the wisdom of men, and the wisdom of men must bow down before the wisdom of God. Everything about Jesus turns the wisdom of the world upside down, but that upside down wisdom is the only thing that can give hope to the world. Apostle Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, this man dying as a criminal, suffocating in his own blood on a cross, that man, that is the wisdom of God. That looks like foolishness. That looks like weakness to the world, but that is the wisdom and the power of God. Now, many of us in this room, we've got that as part of our intellectual framework. We've got that as part of our doctrinal statement. Yeah, I can believe that, and that sounds really good, but the question is, do you really believe it? I mean, do I really believe it? Not just as something that rattles around in my brain, but in the way that I actually live my life. Do I believe that the wisdom of Jesus is better than the wisdom of the world? Like, when it comes down to it, do I trust his wisdom in my marriage? When the world tells me that I shouldn't stay with someone who doesn't make me happy, do I trust the wisdom of Jesus and honor the covenant that he's brought me into and recognize that he's doing something even in the midst of something that doesn't make sense to me? Do I trust him with my money? When the world tells me I should hoard my money, that I should just spend it all on myself, do I trust the wisdom of Jesus who teaches me that it is more blessed to give than to receive? Do I trust him with my sexuality? When the world tells me I should just follow my instincts and sleep with anybody who makes me feel good, do I follow the wisdom of Jesus for my sex life and trust that he loves me enough to tell me what's good for me and to bring me into fullness of joy? Do I trust him when it comes to forgiveness? When the world tells me that I should condemn other people, that I should hold their sins against them, that I should hold grudges, do I follow the wisdom of Jesus who offers free and full and complete forgiveness? So, the way of Jesus is upside down wisdom. He turns the wisdom of the world upside down. And he doesn't just have the spirit of wisdom. Look at verse 2 again. He has the spirit of counsel and of might, he has the spirit of power, which is really good news. Because it can be really difficult to follow the way of Jesus. I can read these things, I can know these things that Jesus says, but sometimes it's really hard to actually do them. It's really hard to actually live them out. That's why it's so important that he doesn't just have the spirit of wisdom, he also has the spirit of power. Because the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the one who has the Spirit in fullness. That He is the anointed one of God. That He is the one, Acts 2 tells us, that has ascended to the right hand of the Father and pours out His Spirit on all those who trust in Him. Pours out His Spirit on all those who follow Him. He gives us the power to follow His wisdom. He gives us the power by His Spirit to walk in His wisdom. He gives us a better hope. He gives us a better wisdom. Third thing we see, he gives us a better justice. A better justice. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All throughout the Bible, you hear this cry for justice. You hear for God to, to this cry for God to come back to defend the oppressed, to defend the poor, to set all things right. You hear it all throughout history. Every culture, every society, you hear this cry welling up from the oppressed people. God, give us justice. And there's a reason for that. It's because in every system, even the best systems with the best people working in them, there is a sense in which human justice is always tinged with corruption. It's always somewhat perverted. Human justice tends to favor the powerful and the privileged. Can I say that this is why I'm so thankful. Like many of you guys in this room are working against that. Many of you guys in this room, you are working for justice. You are working to see that 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 people have access to things they ought to have access to in all different ways. Attorneys and prosecutors and police officers and social workers and advocates for justice and leaders of various nonprofits that are serving and empowering the poor and the marginalized. And as you are doing that, you are picturing the heart of the Messiah You are picturing the spirit of Jesus, of what Jesus has come to do. And so I want to encourage you, in the midst of that darkness, don't give up. Because sometimes you will feel like it is dark. But recognize that God is the one who brings light into the darkness. So we work for justice and yet we also long for the day when Christ returns to set all things right and to make all things new because we're also realistic about the fact that we're always in the midst of broken systems until Jesus comes back. And if you're not realistic about that fact, you're eventually gonna burn out and you're eventually gonna give up. So we work for justice and we long for the king who's gonna come back and set all things right and make all things new. Look what Isaiah says about him, verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. What he's saying there is he's saying the Messiah, the King, he won't judge based on appearances. He's not going to let prejudice get into the way of justice. Now if we stopped right now and we just kind of took a survey and I asked you guys to raise your hands. All right, raise your hand if you think you're prejudiced. Probably nobody in this room is going to raise their hand. but The truth is that we are so blind to our own prejudices. Even the most well-intentioned people, even the most enlightened and educated people, we, are, we often will judge by what our eyes see. Some of you guys know I'm a little bit of a Malcolm Gladwell fanboy. Um, and Gladwell wrote an entire book on this subject. It's called Blink, um, the, the, the Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And one of the things Gladwell actually traces all throughout the book is that even people who hate prejudice, even people who fight against prejudice, can still often fall into it. We judge by what our eyes see. What he says here is that the coming king is not going to be like that. The coming king is going to be perfectly free of all prejudice there will be nothing that gets in the way of him exercising justice for the powerless and the oppressed see this king doesn't just just doesn't just execute justice for the poor but he knows what it's like to be poor and oppressed he is identified with the poor. 2 Corinthians 8 says that Jesus, be, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. This isn't just the king who defends the oppressed. This is the king who has experienced oppression. He has experienced torture and, and injustice and crucifixion and he did it all for us. He did it so that we would not be cut down. Look again at verse 4. With a breath Of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now, it's easy for me to look at that and say, yeah, God's going to bring judgment on all those bad people out there. But when I actually stop and I actually look at my own heart, I realize that wickedness is not just out there in the world, but it's in here in my own heart. And so I'm in a world of trouble. Do I really want that king to come back? what you find when you get to the New Testament is that this is not just the king who comes to execute judgment. This is the, co- the king who has come to take the judgment, who has taken our judgment on himself, who has died in our place, died under the justice that we deserve so that we can be made right with God. That's why I've come to love Christmas because Christmas is not about mushy sentimentality and ugly sweaters. It is about the awful unvarnished reality of a horrifically broken world and it is about the awful unvarnished reality of my horrifically broken life and it is about a god who loves me so much that he refuses to give up on us and he steps into that brokenness and he experiences it with us and he dies for us in order to set us free He's experienced the pain and the oppression and the injustice of the world. And one day he will overcome it. One day he will set all things right and he will make all things new. Now how do I know that? How do I know that Jesus will one day overcome sin and death? Because in one sense he's already done it. Because when he was crushed under the power of injustice and oppression and the evil of the world, he did not stay in the grave. But he walked out of the tomb and he trampled the gates of death and hell underfoot and he rose to the right hand of the Father and he promised, I am coming again and I'm going to make it all right and I'm going to make it all new. Sin and suffering and injustice and poverty and oppression and death will not have the final word. Justice will have the final word. Hope will have the final word. Life will have the final word. Jesus will have the final word. And as the final word, he tells us that something better is coming. Something better not just for you and me, but something better for the whole world. It's the final thing we see. Jesus brings us a better world. I almost hate to say it that way because it sounds so trite. Because we talk all the time, I just want to make the world a little bit better. I want to make the world a better place. But Jesus is doing something much more radical. Jesus is not just coming to make the world better. He has come to make the world new. He's going to remake the entire fabric of creation. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. He's saying, I'm going to bring peace to the entire world. I'm going to bring peace between nations, no more war, no more violence. And that peace is going to extend so far that I am even going to put an end to violence. I'm even going to put an end to the corruption in the natural world. I mean, verse 8 is crazy. The, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's head. If you're a parent, you're freaking out right now. Like My, my son Owen has 27 give or take, different stuffed animals that he's got to sleep with like every night. And he is not going to sleep unless he has them. He's got the whole zoo in his bed at night. That's kind of the idea here except with live animals. Like think about what it's it's like babies will be able to keep cobras in their cribs. That is crazy. But if you actually look at the whole story of scripture, if you go back to the very beginning, you go back to the book of Genesis, you realize that something deeper is going on here. Back in Genesis chapter 3, what's happened is that God's created the world good. He's created Adam and Eve to live and to enjoy his world in perfect peace, in perfect harmony with all of creation. But in Genesis 3, they decide to do things their own way. They decide to be their own gods. They decide, we want to be the kings of the world. And, and, and they're led astray by this talking snake, which we can talk about that some other time. But here's the point. God says this. He says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put hostility between you, the serpent, between the, your descendants and the descendants of the woman, the, the children of Eve. In other words, there's this hostility. There's this danger in the created world. Not just between us and animals, but between us and the natural elements, between us and cancer, between us and all of these different things, all these different diseases and destruction that can come upon us. And God says, But it's not always going to be that way. It's not always going to be that way. I will reverse the curse, I will reverse sin and death, and you don't need to be afraid of anything anymore no more violence no more oppression no more war no more disease no more destruction no more death verse 9 they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain jerusalem was was built is built on top of a mountain and the temple the house of god was on this holy mountain And Isaiah is talking about this in about 700 B.C. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian army is actually going to come into Jerusalem and they're going to conquer God's people and they're going to enslave a lot of them and they're going to take them to Babylon and they're going to tear down the city and they're going to tear down the temple. But God says, after that, I'm going to do something better. I'm going to get rid of violence and war and oppression. I'm going to build a better city, and I'm going to build a better temple, and my glory is not going to be restrained to one temple. It's not going to be confined in one place. The whole world will be my temple, because I'm going to fill the earth with my glory. Verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that day the root of jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious the entire world will be flooded the entire world will be saturated with the knowledge of the lord Like i don't know if you've been to the ocean recently but there is water everywhere and that that's the point a deluge like flooded with God's presence, flooded with God's glory. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, he says, the nations that are oppressing God's people. The nations that are cut off from God's promises. By the way, if you're reading this in 700 BC, that's you and me. Non-Jews sitting here reading, uh, worshiping the Messiah today. He says they're going to come to the root of Jesse, They're going to inquire of him, and they're going to follow him, and they're going to bow down to him, and they're going to worship him. They are going to know the Lord, and they're going to find life in him. Friends, can I tell you, in a few minutes, we're going to take up our Advent offering. That's why we're taking up our Advent offering today. That's why we're digging deep in our pockets to give toward the cause of global missions. That's why some of you right now, God might be calling you to leave and to go somewhere where they've not heard the gospel, where they don't have access to the truth of the gospel. This is why Jesus came. This is the whole point of Christmas. He came so that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is why he came, and that is where God is moving all of human history. That's the only reason we are sitting here today. That's the only reason we even know about this Jesus today. And that's also why we are sent out from here today. Because this better justice and this better wisdom and this better hope and this better world that Jesus is bringing is not just for one group of people. It is not for one ethnic group. It is not for one socioeconomic group. It is not for people living in one part of the world. It is not just for people in our city or in our country. He is going to make the entire world new. He wants that good news of that hope to go to every corner of the globe. We don't hoard this hope for ourselves. We announce it to people everywhere and we invite them into it because God's passion is to bless people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the God who has rescued us and has brought us to himself and now sends us out so that we can bring others in. He wants to bless and he deserves to be worshipped by people everywhere. He deserves to be worshipped by people in Indianapolis and in India by people in Broad Ripple and in Balochistan. He is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of their worship. He has set us free, and he wants to set them free. He died so that we could know his love, and he died so that they could know his love. So that every hill and every valley, so that every city and town and village, so that every corner of the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's why Jesus came. That's what God is doing in the world. That's something worth giving our lives for. How can he do that? How can can this king, how can some guy who lived 2,000 years ago bring me to God? How can some guy who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East bring people from all over the world to God? How can he reverse the curse that the world is under? How can he bring justice in a world that is so filled with injustice? How can he set all things right and make all things new? The only reason he can do it is because of who he is. Because this is no mere human king. This is the king of heaven and earth. Look who he's talking about. Look all the way back at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So verse 1, he calls him a shoot. Verse 10, what does he call him? He calls him the root of Jesse. He's the shoot of Jesse, and he's the root of Jesse. I'm really confused right. I know nothing about botany. I know nothing about plants. But I know you can't be the shoot and the root. He's a descendant of Jesse, and he's the source of Jesse. He's an ancestor. He, he comes after Jesse, and he comes before Jesse. It is a really confusing family tree. How is that possible? How is it possible? It's only possible if he is both human and divine. It's only possible if he is who Jesus claimed to be, if he is Emmanuel, if he is God with us. He's the descendant of Jesse who comes from the line of Jesse and he's the source. He's the one who created Jesse. He's the creator who has become human. He's the God who's become man. And so here's what that means for you as you think about Christmas. This is the meaning of Christmas. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, whether you're exploring Christianity, where you got questions about Christianity, wherever you find yourself, here's what this means, here's what Jesus is claiming.